It's good to see you. Good morning. How is everyone? Uh, it's good to be back. It's good to, good to be seen. Uh, it's been a while, and I guess I'll go ahead and offer up the disclaimer since it's been a while since you've seen me. Uh, yes, <clears throat> I still have a razor at my house. I've just decided not to use it for the time being, although I will say now that I'm back here at church and I get to see guys like Josh and Matt, my, my beard growth ability is not near on par as what theirs is, so I doubt I keep it for very long. Uh, I, I will say, though, that I have actually tried to get my hair cut at least four different times over the last month, and it just hasn't happened. So, Lord willing, Wednesday, it'll happen. Your prayers are appreciated. Um, it's good to be back, and I will begin with a word of thanks and gratitude to uh, each of you, to many of you, those of you online as well that I know that aren't here um, with us in person. Your love and your support over the last several weeks has been uh, incredible, and it has been deeply appreciated by me and my family. Every card, every text that always felt so timely and intentional, um, every meal, every, every gesture of support and sympathy has been deeply appreciated and I'm truly grateful for it, so thank you. Words cannot convey it enough. If you are a guest or a visitor with us today, either again in person or online, let me give you some context as to why I'm sharing such appreciation. Um, on December 26th, my dad was diagnosed with COVID, and it started a, a long, hard-fought battle that he ultimately uh, wasn't able to overcome, and on January 18th, he passed away. And so it's obviously been a very difficult time for my family, and uh, one of the repercussions of going through something like that is it's uh, created an absence for me to be here uh, for the last several Sundays. And it just so happened to follow after several Sundays that I was always already scheduled to be out as a result of the Christmas and New Year's holiday. And so I think for more than a month now, I've been here once, uh, one Sunday, and so I've kind of had an extended absence. And... Um, I just want you to know that I, I truly appreciate the grace that you all have shown to me as a church in addition to the support and allowing me and my family the time and the space to, to continue to go through what we're going through. Um, I truly appreciate it. I'm a creature of habit by nature. I think many of us are, right? Just instinctively creatures of habit. We, we have these routines that we establish for ourselves when we have certain responsibilities that we need to fulfill or to accomplish. And so we, we develop these habits to help us be successful, right? Could be related to school and how you do schoolwork or your job and responsibilities there, athletics, right? The, the simplest, I guess, example for me would be the free throw, right? You ever watch an NBA player shoot a free throw? They do the same thing every single time before every shot. Um, I'm not an NBA player, but I remember when I played basketball, it was the same for me. I'd spin it backwards, dribble twice with my right hand, shoot. Uh, those routines, those, those habits help us be successful, right? So we, we cultivate those things, especially when we know certain responsibilities that we have. That's what Sunday is for me. Um, I have a lot of routines and, and habits that I've cultivated through the years so that when Sunday morning comes and I've entrusted with the opportunity and the privilege to share the gospel, to speak the gospel from here. I, I have those routines and those habits that I rely upon to ensure that it'll go well. And, and that's more than just, you know, figuring out how to memorize or internalize or some of the logistical preparation that's obviously a part of the process. It's all the time spent in prayer, all, all the time spent in the word, um, 
researching, listening to the Spirit of God so that when Sunday comes, I can stand before you with hopefully a humble assurance that the message you will hear will be Spirit-led, Christ-centered, and biblically guided. Those are the routines that I, I fall upon on a normal Sunday. Today is not a normal Sunday for me. So I've had to adapt a little bit. And um, part of the reason is there's just no rule book. There's no guide for this. Um, there's really no way to prepare. Because we're talking about grief. And grief's hard. Um, you know, I'm embarking upon a year of firsts. And so it's hard to anticipate how it's going to hit you. You don't really know how to prepare for it. And I knew this day would be hard no matter when it happened. Um, you can research grief. You can, you can look at it. You can see that there's five stages, right? Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. I think those are pretty common for any of us that go through it. Um, but the reality is, is that while you have some common denominators, none of us go through those stages in the same way. Right? We go through them at different rates, at different paces, at different times. We react to them differently. You just don't know how you're going to feel. I remember when I was younger, I was watching a Monday night football game. Could have been Sunday night, I guess. It was a nighttime, primetime game, and Brett Favre was playing. And it was, I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, a couple days after his, his dad had passed away. And he played phenomenally, because it was Brett Favre, crying out loud. And the commentators just kept talking about it, how amazing it was and how commendable it was and all this stuff. And I remember watching it when I was younger, thinking to myself, I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could lose my dad and then go play football a couple days later or go to, go to work. And that's the point, right? Everyone is different. Right? For some of us, when we go through those stages of grief, that's exactly what we need. We find comfort in that which is familiar, that which is uh, normal, that which is what we've been entrusted to do. Others of us, man, we just we need to take time, right? It's different for all of us. But, but here's what I know, is that while there are so many differences in how we handle grief, I do believe grief is God's medicine for the soul. It's a good thing. A day or two after my dad passed away, I had a text from a good friend who said, there is something about grief for the divinity of God, where our humanity can be uniquely touched by the divinity of Christ. I loved that, and it's so true. And so part of what I'm trying to model for you today is that it's okay to grieve. It's normal, it's good, God uses it. He, re he redeems us, he restores us, he touches us in a unique way when we go through it. And so we should embrace it, but we shouldn't dwell in it. And so how do you go through grief and allow it to restore you and heal you without being shackled by it? That's a very difficult line to walk. And that's part of the tension and the difficulty of what I'm dealing with this morning. Right? Because I fully recognize today is not to be a day that is an outlet for my grief. Right? I love my dad. I love talking about him. I love telling people how amazing he was. And I'll do that. Man, we can go to lunch. We can go grab coffee. We'll have that conversation. But I, 
we've had my dad's service, right? Today is not a day to relive that. And the last thing I want is for guests and visitors to leave here today going, well, gosh, that was depressing, <laughs> right? We're here to hear the word of God, to be encouraged and stirred by his presence. And I know that. But on the other hand, as a believer, I've always felt a strong conviction that there's power in being vulnerable and in being transparent, right? To open up to one another about the struggles that you're going through, the hurts, the pains, the sorrows, because when we do that with each other, we get a greater glimpse of God's power being unleashed in our lives. And so there's another part of me that needs to open up about it and share it with you because it is what I'm going through. And I believe we can all learn from it and be encouraged by it to see the way that God works in the midst of it. And so I don't know how to do today. I'm just honest. I really don't. I'm going to do my best. Here's the comfort that I have and have been resting upon over the last several days and preparing for today. It's two things. Number one, my dad would want me here. Secondly, it's not really about me. <laughs> the reality is, is that what I know is that what's going to stir your heart and encourage you, convict you, challenge you, inspire you, whatever that may be today, really has nothing to do with me and what I say or don't say or how I say it. It has everything to do with the spirit of the living God, and he's here. And he wants to work in you, and he wants to work in me. And so that's what we're going to let him do. So let's invite him to join us as we approach his word. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we love you. And we are grateful that you Bless us with your presence and with your strength and with your holy word, God. And that's exactly what we look to now, is we look for, once again, truths that transcend anything that we see in this life and call us into a greater promise, call us into a greater hope, a hope that needs to be the anchor of our souls, Father. So enrich us now, in this time, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, let's turn to Hebrews Chapter 12, all right? Uh, this is a, a text that we've been walking through for the last several weeks that is really designed to help set the tone for the year. Uh, I told you all that one Sunday I was here, and I want to kind of reiterate some of this, that when I started planning this year, 2021, I was factoring in so much of what we'd gone through, right? Through this pandemic and through the tumultuous uh, experiences of 2020, and as 2020 came to a close, we had crazy things happening in the political arena. We had so much going around, around us. It just felt like chaos, right? And the image that I kept coming back to is this image of God like grabbing us and holding us by the face and just saying, just look at me, right? Just look at me. Don't, don't worry about all the chaos that surrounds you. And, and that's kind of what kept drawing me back to this notable verse in Hebrews 12, fix your eyes on Jesus. That to me was the answer. That, that's how we move forward. That's how we navigate through everything that is around us. We, we fix our eyes on Jesus. But the irony was is that when I first set these plans out and put them in motion, I never really thought we would teach through Hebrews, right? We were gonna 
dedicate to the year to that as, as the Lenten devotional points to the names of Jesus. We're going to spend time this year looking at the words of Jesus, the parables of Jesus. Like we have all these things that are going to help us to focus in on him. I just didn't think we would go through Hebrews 12. But then the week before the series started, I, I pivoted. I sensed God leading us in a different direction, saying, no, that's exactly what you need to do. You need to look at these three verses and let them set the tone for how important this really is. And so that's what we've done, man. We've taken a deep dive into chapter 12, one through three. Jason kicked us off, did a great job of talking about what it means to be surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. Uh, I was here for that one Sunday next where we had a chance to talk about uh, throwing off the sin that so easily entangles anything that hinders. And I had a fun conversation about politics. That's the way to do it. Talk about the most controversial subject you know and then just leave for a couple of weeks, right? So, so I was here to talk about that. Kevin did a phenomenal job. He brought great vocabulary demonstrations. He's, he's got that's such a great way to integrate visuals into his talk, talking about what it means to run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. And then last week, we had a wonderful word from Warren that really drove us to the heart of this section of Scripture. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Right? And when, when you read a verse like that, a lot of times we think that what that means is that Jesus is perfecting our faith, right? That as we follow Jesus, our faith will get stronger, right? It, it will mature. We're being sanctified. And I think a lot of that is true. But really what I think is being said here in Hebrews 12 is not so much that our faith is being perfected, but that Jesus is the perfect example of faith. That's what Warren did such a great job pointing out, right? Jesus sets the standard. Here's the author of Hebrew going through all these different examples in chapter 11, and then he gets to chapter 12 and says, no, but really the best example of faith, the ultimate, the perfect example of faith is Jesus. And so with that being established, now the author is gonna take us into an example of how that faith is most beautifully displayed in what Jesus has done for us. And that's what we're gonna look at today is the next phrase that follows that. And so we're gonna read all of verses one through three in chapter 12. The hope here is that this section is somewhat embedded in our memories by the time we're done with this series. So pick up with me in chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders in the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So our, our focal verse today is that section that says, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What a powerful statement. And so what we're gonna do is you're gonna work through it just bit by bit. And, and there's something that it really kind of grabs your attention when you just begin to consider for the joy set before him. It's a, it's a problematic statement, especially in the original Greek. And in fact, many interpreters struggle with what is the author really trying to say here? What, what is being implied with that statement for the joy set before him? And, and there are really two common options to consider. Here, here's option number one. One option would be that Jesus was able to look ahead at all the earthly joys that, that life could afford him, right? All the, the experiences of, of living. But he chose, rather than going towards those joys and continuing to live, he chose to forego those joys, to set them aside, and chose obedience and submission for the cross. 
right? And so the picture is that earthly treasures, worldly joys, are not to be what motivates us, right? What we are to, to follow and what we are to demonstrate our faith with is a faith that trusts in complete obedience and submission no matter where it leads. We are not to build our lives on a joy that is fleeting and temporary. That would be one way to interpret this. Is that true for you? Do you, do you demonstrate in that, that way in your life, right? That, that you are able to set aside the earthly joys, the temporary fleeting experiences that we find in this life and constantly choose a faith that points you towards obedience and submission no matter where it leads. I think the reality is, is that it's easy for us to get caught up in the joys of this life. And there's nothing wrong with it, right? We're not to, to reject them. We should be grateful for them. We should experience them and, and hold on to them. We just shouldn't build our lives upon them, right? And that's, that's the difference. But the, the truth is, I think for many of us, it's easy for the joys that we have in this life to become ultimate and for us to cling more tightly to them than we should. And we need to be reminded that that's not what we're called to do. Right? As I've gone through this recent experience of grief, I'm, I'm here to tell you, like, my dad brought so much joy to my life in so many different ways, and I wish he was still here for us to, to add to that list of memories. But as great as that joy that I had with him and with so many others that I've experienced is, he has never been and never will be the anchor of my faith. Right? And so whatever joys you have in life, could be joys from a successful career, from the perfect family, great kids, a wonderful spouse, success, you name it. Savor them, be grateful for them, never make them ultimate. And the way that we know that we haven't made them ultimate is when we demonstrate a faith that says, I'm willing to set all those aside for the sake of obedience and submission, no matter where it leads. And that's what Jesus did. One of the reasons why it's a, a perfect example of faith. Now, the other option is somewhat similar, right? Maybe a, a slightly different nuance to it. And the way that I typically read this verse is that really what happened here is that Jesus was able to see beyond the cross, right? That, that Jesus was actually able to see the salvation that was on the other side of it, understood what would happen, understood what it meant, and as a result, he found joy. Right, that, that what Jesus did here is he found joy in the midst of suffering because he knew that the suffering would lead to glory, right? And that's why he was willing and able to endure it. He had the proper perspective. The way that Paul says it in Romans is that he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will outweigh them all, right? That that's what Jesus did. Right? I, can, I can encounter any of these things. I can embrace this suffering. I can overcome this suffering because I know what awaits. I know there is something better. And as a result, Jesus amazingly found joy in the cross. That's incredible. It's remarkable, really. And it is an example of hope that all of us should cling to. Right, that even in our darkest days, in our deepest valleys, in the hardest of trials and circumstances and obstacles, we can still be joyful because we can see beyond it through Jesus. 
right? I mean, that, that's part of what my family has recently gone through. Right? The reason we can gather together at a funeral service or a graveside or wherever, and yes, still gather with tears and heartache and sadness, we can accompany those things with smiles and laughter and worship because we know that there is something better. Right? Like at some point, we have to believe all of this. Right? Like it's got to be more than just coming to church on Sunday and in a topic that's somewhat interesting or a moral code for us to figure out how to navigate life. Like we have to, have to actually believe in the resurrection of the dead. And when we do, we find an all-surpassing joy. It's remarkable, really. And so that becomes the example that, that Jesus is setting the tone in terms of a perfect faith, regardless of which interpretation you choose, that Jesus was able to look beyond the cross, choose obedience, submission, and find joy even in the darkest moments because he knew there was something better. That's faith. That's the perfect example of faith that we have in Christ. And so the author paints a picture of how it really kind of came about. And what I love about this picture is that it's not that it's this highlight of a moment in Jesus's life that points us to a miraculous healing or an incredible teaching or calming winds and waves. The, the perfect expression, the perfect picture that Jesus has to put this obedience and this joy on display was the cross. All right, so what, what Jesus did is for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. That's the first part of this picture that the author is painting. And so the author uses a word like shame to remind us that that's exactly how the cross was viewed, right? It, it was the ultimate expression of humiliation. I hope we understand that. Like this was the worst way to die. This was the universal perspective of a crucifixion. It was the death resigned for the common criminal. Utterly shameful. So like, take that in for a moment. That the Savior of the world, in birth and in death, experienced complete shame. Shame of being born in a manger and dying on a cross. Right? I don't know that there is a contemporary example for that for us today. And the closest I could think of, as I tried to reflect upon it, is somebody being born in an alley and dying in prison. Right? Rather than in the comforts of a hospital with family around and announcements of the safe arrival of a child, picture a child being born into poverty, in, in, in utter difficult situations and circumstances, a child being born in an alley. Right? And then you think about a criminal dying a horrific death in prison. Right? These are the lives that rarely get mentioned that rarely are talked about because they are so saturated with shame. And Jesus took that shame and injected powerful meaning and significance into it and transformed the manger to be something to celebrate and the cross something to be worshipped. It's remarkable. All right, so Jesus takes on this shame and in so doing identifies himself with the full expression of a wretched, 
fallen humanity. That's why he embraced that shame. But what did he do with it? He didn't just endure the cross. According to this, this verse, he scorned its shame. I love that. Scorn means to despise. Right? So, so a way to think of it is that essentially Jesus thought so little of the shame that was attached to crucifixion, he was unafraid of it. Undeterred, right? Fearless of the shame that it might entail. He scorned it, right? He despised it. He rejected it. It's really a remarkable statement to see that Jesus was able to embrace that level of suffering, that level of pain, that level of shame fearlessly. And as I was thinking about that and reflecting upon that this past week, I started thinking, can we do the same? Like, are we able to do that? Can we follow Jesus' example? And, and the more I thought about it, I really kind of thought, no, I don't know that we can. <laughs> and, and honestly, I don't know that we're supposed to. Because as I've recently experienced, listen, death is awful. And so, of course, it's terrifying. Of course, it creates fears and worry and anxiety. Of course, it does. And so, part of what I've, I've kind of taken from this in recent contemplation and reflection is not that we are supposed to be fearless like Jesus. We're supposed to take our fears to Jesus. He's done what we can't. He is the perfect mediator, the perfect advocate for you and for me. And so when we go through that sort of hardship, that sort of difficulty, we, we muster up the strength to take this worry, to take the fear, to take the anxiety, the hurt, the pain, whatever it is, and we bring it to Jesus. And we discover an incredibly powerful truth. Death doesn't win. Jesus does. And that's where we find such an incredible hope. Right? And so, so think about what Jesus has done here. Right? This, this ability to set aside joy or look beyond the suffering, look beyond the shame, find that joy, and be able to scorn the shame of the cross. It's a very powerful opening picture to this perfect faith that the author is trying to get us to understand, but the picture doesn't stop there, does it? It's not just that he scorned the shame of the cross and endured it, but what did he do next? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. <laughs> that is an incredible statement. The reference to sitting down suggests the permanency of the, of the act. Jesus is unmoved from the heavenly realms. Right? The right hand of God is a position of privilege. It's a position of status. Right? It's a position of honor. The throne room is, is a place of supernatural power, of authority, of ruling. And so what we have in this short little phrase of a verse is that Jesus was able to transform shame into joy suffering into glory because he was the one who could walk from the cross to the throne. What a contrast from cross 
to throne. And so when we look at a passage like this, the question we need to ask ourselves is, what are the burdens we carry? Right, what, what are the crosses we bear? What are the ones that you bring into this room? What season are you in in your life? Is it an emptiness that you're finding as a result of just trying to fill that void with all these earthly joys that are good for a moment, but you discover are ultimately fleeting? So they leave you empty. The desire for a great career, for success, the perfect family, whatever it is, right? Is that your burden? Is that what you're trying to endure right now? Maybe it's the shame attached to continued mistakes, things done in secret, addictions that continue to win, right? And you continue to just feel beat down by it. Is it fear? Right? The fear of the world around us, the fear of a, a disease, an illness that you've been diagnosed with? Is it grief and the sorrow that accompanies it? Like, what, what do you bring into this room today? What do you carry? Part of what we find in a verse like this is a realization and a reminder that Jesus sets the example for us and gives us the same promises, right? That the promises and the things that he experienced are extended to you and me as well, that no matter what it is that we are called to endure, no matter how agony or hardship or pain will hunt us down and find us and bind us at different points in our lives, we too have the hope to know that we can go from shame to joy, from suffering to glory because we follow the one who walks from the cross to the throne. So let me be very clear, church. I want to make sure you hear this in the deepest part of your heart. Our God is not dead. He's alive. I'm going to say it again. It's the essence of the gospel. Our God is not dead. He is alive. And that changes everything. He's not buried in some ancient tomb. He is resurrected and sits at the right hand of God, unmoved with ultimate reign, power, and authority. And so there's nothing we can face in this life that changes that. And so we should walk accordingly. So I'm, I'm turning 39 next month, right, at the end of March. And I would tell you without question that in my almost 39 years of existence, losing my dad is the hardest thing I've ever gone through. It's not even really close. In the way in which we lost him, um, was far from easy. I mean, we're living in a pandemic. And what my family has gone through, not just hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people around the world have gone through and are going through it. Our church. Recently, we've lost two great men as a result of it. Many of you have already lost family members just like I have. Many of you are sitting there worried 
about family members just like I was and am. Very difficult. And part of the reason it's been so difficult and why it's hit us at different levels and different degrees is because it takes us right back to the reminder of death. And death is awful. Right? It's like this darkened figure that you hear about. Like you know he's out there. And you hear stories about him all the time. And the ways that he might visit this family and that family or this situation and that situation. And sometimes those stories you hear seem very distant, very remote. Sometimes they feel a lot closer to home. And then one day you wake up and he's in your house. Walking among your loved ones. And it's terrifying. And so without question, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. But I've said this numerous times through this process. It's the hardest thing I've ever done but every step of the way, I have felt God's presence. Moments where I could literally feel him holding me close, assuring me it's going to be okay. I'm going to get you through this. Moments where he helped me look beyond hospital rooms and viruses and pandemics and to see Jesus. And that hope has meant everything. And I'm here to tell you by firsthand experience, there is so much power in that promise when we read God telling each and every one of us, I will never leave you or forsake you. And part of what this has done is opened me up to a greater understanding of God's love, love in general. Like, I, I understand love more today than I did several weeks ago because of the way this whole process had made me feel and has made me feel. To know how deeply I loved my dad and to be undone by those emotions and those feelings in the midst of them realize it pales the comparison to how God loves us. And that thought blows my mind. And so I'm here to tell you, it's the hardest thing I've ever done, but I've never felt closer to God. And that's not a statement about me, it's a remarkable statement about the sort of God we serve <laughs> and who he is and the depths of his love. And so my encouragement for all of us today and for next week and the week after is that wherever God may lead us, and no matter what we may have to face, we should celebrate this incredible promise that we serve a God that walks with us in the valley. And he gives us the strength and the ability and the hope to take shame and change it to joy, suffering into glory, weeping into rejoicing, because we follow the one who walked from the cross to the throne. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we are grateful 
for the love that you have shown us and put on display through Jesus. God, we're grateful that even in the hardest moments and the hardest times, God, we have a reason to worship, we have a reason to sing, we have a peace that transcends understanding, we have a hope that conquers all because we know, Father, that you are greater. And so, Father, as we look to Jesus, help us to fix our eyes on him in every way possible. Father, that we would truly celebrate the fact that that Christ is alive, not just in some story, but in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls. And let his life, his strength, his grace, his mercy continue to cause us to sing these songs of joy. And so, Father, we follow in the footsteps of our King. And we take all of our worldly ambitions, all of our worldly desires, all of our hurts, our pains, our fears, we lay them at your feet. And with joyful, hopeful prayers and commitments and praises, we say, not our will, Father, but yours to be done, both now and forevermore, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen and amen.